Excellent singing. Take your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. We've been, for the last month or so, month or two, we've been going through a study of the one another commands of Scripture. And uh, hopefully it's been a blessing to you. It has been a rebuke to me as we've been studying the commands that God gives us, how we interact. We've looked at pray for one another, encourage one another, love one another, honor one another, bear with one another. And then last week we looked at confessing our sins to one another. Today I want to talk about the command that's given to submit to one another. This topic generates a lot of resistance um, for obvious reasons. But one of the reasons I think it, it, it generates a lot of resistance is because the biblical viewpoint is as diametrically opposed to the world's philosophy as you can possibly be. If you want to follow God and His Word on this subject of submitting, then you must conscientiously throw off the world's mindset. And you must decide to submit to what God's Word plainly says, what God's Word plainly teaches. Our subject for this morning is submission. If you look in your Bible at Ephesians chapter 5, our, our main text will be Ephesians chapter 5 verse 21, but really Ephesians 5 21 is, is part of a sentence. It's not a sentence in and of itself. And so we need to look back and look at the entire sentence. And so if you will, uh, look at starting in verse 18. It says, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord in your hearts giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Let's pray. God, we are thankful for Your Word. Lord, we're thankful for this text. and Lord, help us to understand what it means to be so controlled by the Spirit and by the working of the Spirit in our lives that we mutually submit to each other that we seek to place others as higher than ourselves, that we seek to serve others without regard for our own needs. Lord, I pray that you'll help us to love each other that much. Lord, be with my words, that they will be um, given to me by you, and that your grace will be evident. Lord, we ask that you are glorified in your name. Amen. As we see there, the command uh, to submit to one another... Is there, and as I said, this is this is in the framework of a uh, an entire uh, sentence that um, gives us a number of different commands, actually. And uh, Alex, you're going to have to operate this for me. Um, but uh, we see there the command that is given, and we see the verse that we looked at in verse 21. But then uh, he gives us, if you look back at verses I read there in verse 18, he says, "Do not be drunk with wine," but he said, "Be filled with the Spirit." We'll get into what that means more, but that, that filled with the Spirit is, is a command He gives us. It's, a, it's a, an attitude we should have, and with that comes some uh, five um, phrases or commands that are given. We see the first one there, if you look at 
uh, verse 19. He says, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. That is the idea, and, and we'll take some other time to talk about this. We talked, went through Ephesians a couple years ago, but it's the idea of that we're, we're, we're literally speaking to each other uh, with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. That's why corporate worship is such an amazing thing, and that's why God commands us to worship together. I, uh, I, I think it's so important that we're doing that. As, as you're sitting there singing, it's not just about you. It's not just about uh, singing to God. It's about, it's about speaking truth to the person around you and speaking it to each other. And so he gives us that command, and so we're, we're to do that. But the, the second one there, he says singing, and, and that is, is proclaiming uh, God in everything that we do. And then the third one is, is also a part of the worship, and he says making melody to the Lord. Um, I, I had someone recently tell me, they said, you know, no one wants me to sing in church because I have such a horrible voice. Well, you know what? You're not the only one. But God does command us to make melody to the Lord. God does command us to, to lift our voices to Him. And it doesn't matter. You know, I've stood by some people that have had horrible voices, and people have stood by me and probably have said the same thing. But it's, it's about uh, praising God. But then he goes on and he says we're to give thanks always in verse, in verse 20. Giving thanks always. That's, part of, that's another indication of a person who is filled with the Spirit. If you are controlled by the Spirit, you are going to be a constant person who is giving thanks and that's a whole sermon in itself, but are you that type of person? Are you a constant complainer? A life that is filled with the Spirit, controlled by the Spirit, is one that is one that's giving thanks. But then he comes to our text, and that is submitting to one another. Submitting to one another. And that is uh, giving of ourselves. This, this, these uh, commands here are now springboards to what he's going to talk about over the next couple chapters, and that is dealing with relationships. And as we submit to one another, then he introduces to uh, other relationships, and he says, and he talks about marriage and husbands and wives, and he talks about parents and children. He talks about slaves and masters and how we're to interact. But as I said a few moments ago, that this teaching of submitting to one another is so opposed to the world's view. The world encourages everyone to stand for his or her own rights. I'm not saying that we should not be concerned about our rights as U.S. citizens. I'm not saying that. But oftentimes, fighting for our rights means in the process that we belittle someone else or we push someone else aside. Let me give you an example. A woman has a right to protect her life and a right to care for her life. That's what we're told. And so because of that, she says, I'm willing to do whatever it takes. And if she uh, gets pregnant, whether it's by her choice or whether it's by accident or whether it's by rape, she says, I have a right to protect. And so while in the process of protecting her own body, she neglects to submit to the right of the baby she's carrying. And you would all agree that's wrong. But yet, we, in our own way, we try all the time to assert ourselves. And the world says, assert yourself. Stand up for your rights. You don't have to take the type of treatment that you're being given. But God's way is submit. And these views are so polar opposite. And you cannot take away the idea of what God says in this passage. You can always find those that claim that uh, we can bend the Bible to fit uh, their beliefs. And, and even Christians sometimes will take 
take their own beliefs and bend them to believe. And some people will come to me sometimes and say, how does someone come to that opinion and be a Christian? Because it's easy to take your own way and kind of try to put Scripture into it. And so because of that, even this passage of submitting to one another has some possible explanations. There are different opinions on this. And so just quickly, I want to look at this because I want you to understand that these views are out there. First of all, some people believe that mutual submission abolishes gender roles. There's some people that hold to this passage in verse 21, submit to one another. And so because of that, there is no sense that, that uh, wife, wives need to submit to their husbands because you know here it says we're all to submit to each other. And that's throwing off leadership. And it seems that the verses that follow decisively show that Paul was not abolishing gender-based roles. Also, there are other verses throughout Scripture that stipulate male leadership in the home and in the church. And so I'm not spending much time talking about this one because I don't think there's any biblical basis for it. The second one that many people will, will hold to is that submission only applies to those under authority. The idea of this view is that submission is for the roles that are told to submit. The word submit throughout the Bible is almost exclusively used as an authoritative type position. We're told as citizens to submit to our government in Romans chapter 13. We'll look at that in a little bit. We're told uh, as uh, wives are told to submit to their husband. Employees are told to submit to their employers. Children are told to submit to their parents. The church is told to submit to Christ. The universe is told to submit to God. We see submission over and over again. And it's significant that in every time those, those illustrations are used, those examples are used, they're never reversed. There's never a time when it says specifically, husbands, submit to your wives. And so many people say, well, this submission must only include those type of relationships. They must only be about those uh, type of things. But I, I don't believe that's true. And so the third explanation is submission is mutual. You say, how is that possible? How can I mutually submit? I mean, if I'm submitting to someone else, <laughs> then they're not submitting to me. So how is that possible? Um, when, when I would take the kids up to camp at Northland, there's a little secret I'm going to give you that youth pastors don't want to tell you. We loved going to camp because I would go to camp and I would drop the kids off and I would have a week off. Don't tell anyone I said that, okay? But it would be great. I would go and I would spend time with the, the kids. I would go to services and I would see them and in the coffee shop and then I would walk away and let the camp take care of them and I would enjoy a week. And so uh, a lot of times when my son was young, I would take him with me and we would go and we'd go, uh, one year we tried to go camping and it poured and that didn't work, but we would go and we'd go hiking, we'd do all sorts of things. Well, usually every year we would go golfing. I say we, I would go golfing and my son would ride in the cart. He would enjoy that. And there was a place that we would like to go that was about 15 minutes from the campus. And uh, it's this uh, resort called Four, Acre, Four Seasons Resort. Maybe some of you have been there. Okay, it's, uh, it, it's, it's an interesting location. There, there's a river, and the river splits and then joins again, in creating an island. And so a number of years ago, a resort was built there. Now, the, the, um, the traditional view is, and I don't know if this is accurate, but the traditional view is that years ago, uh, Al Capone actually paid for this resort to be built as a hideaway. Don't know if that's true or not, but it's a cool story, isn't it? I mean, really? But anyway, you would come to this, and there was, you had to cross a bridge to get to it. 
And this bridge, I have a picture of it, this bridge is not the widest bridge in the world. Now, thankfully, it's not very long, so those of you that are afraid of scary bridges, you're not on it for very long. But I remember the first time I came to it, and you come to it, and you don't see it in this picture, but right before you came to this bridge, there was a sign that said, Yield. Well, obviously, you couldn't, I mean, most of the time if I was going here, I'd be driving a church, our church van who, that barely fit between the, the, the rails there, and so I would go across thinking, uh, I'm assuming this will hold, you know, you get across. And I remember I went, and we, we golfed, and, and we hopped back in the van, and we come back, and as we come back across the other way, guess what was there? A sign that said, yield. And the idea is that no matter which way you're going, you're yielding to the person uh, on the other side. That is the idea that's given here of a mutual submission. That it's not my way. I'm not the one that's, you know, uh, I'm going to charge ahead and, 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 uh, and do what I want. The term submit that's given in Scripture is a military term. It's the idea of placing myself under the authority of someone else. Now, it does not, mutual submission does not uh, do away with the concept of authority, but it, it argues that there is a sense that even those in positions of authority should submit to those under their authority by serving them in love. Jesus is an amazing example of this. Jesus in, uh, was in authority over the disciples, and yet He laid aside His rights and He served them over and over again. So while, a husband, while husbands do not ignore or give up authority over, over their wives that Scripture gives them, they should lay aside their selfishness and their need for control and serve. Instead, they obey the command by, by giving up of themselves for their wives and selflessly seeking their wives' highest good. The command in Scripture is I am to love my wife. And you know what that means? That means I am to give up of myself. And so guess what I'm supposed to do? I'm supposed to submit to her. Now, biblically, she has a command to submit to me. But yet, in love, I serve her. There is also a sense in which even parents are subject to their own children as they serve them in love. How many times as a parent have you given up what you want and what you desire because your kids have a need? That's the idea of submission. When a father lovingly gives himself for his kids, there is subjection. There is submission. When we assist one another, it's servitude. Thus, there would seem to be a sense in which we all are to mutually submit to one another without abandoning our God-given roles of authority. So let's look for a few moments at what are some characteristics of mutual submission. First of all, mutual submission starts with being filled with the Spirit. We looked at that in verse 18 where it says there in that passage, Do not be drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And the, the concept there is we often turn to that verse when we talk about wine, and really that verse is not about wine. That verse is about what's controlling you. And, and if you've seen person, someone who's drunk before, you understand they're not in control of what they're doing. Okay, I've been to enough ball games before, football games or basketball games, where I've sat by someone who is completely drunk, and it's obvious. It affects the way that they speak. It affects the way that they walk. It affects the way that they think. It affects everything about them. They're being dominated and controlled by the alcohol. 
And here in this passage it says we are not to be that. We are to be people who are under the control of the Spirit so that everything I do when I speak, when I walk, when I think, it's not my words that are controlling me. It's not my actions that are controlling me. It's, it's the Holy Spirit that's living inside of me. And when I begin to do that, I will find that I will submit myself to others in love. When I begin to do that, I will find that I will submit myself to others because I care about them and I know it's what God has for me. And it's submitting to God. It goes along with the other things that we looked at there as well. That there's an attitude of worship. There's an attitude of thankfulness. I don't get to be up here as Pastor Nate does when we're leading, when he's leading singing. I, a few weeks ago we sang and I was able to do that for the first time. And, and uh, um, as I look out, you know, you see people who, who aren't singing and it's, it's very clear. You know, maybe, maybe there's an excuse for that. Maybe you don't know the song or maybe your voice hurts that day. But a lot of times it's, it's very clear that it's a person who's not led by the Spirit. We see that in Scripture it says that a person who is controlled by the Spirit is going to reflect these things. And so mutual submission starts with a life that is submitted to the Spirit's will. We are not willing to submit to the Spirit, then we're never going to be willing to submit to each other. So mutual submission starts with being filled with the Spirit. Second thing, mutual submission comes from an understanding of the authority created by God. And this is key. Because there is a sense of authority. We recognize that in every human endeavor that requires involvement of many people, there must be an authority and there must be a chain of command. Uh, let's, let's imagine for a minute that we were to build a house. My wife and I decided we were going to buy a piece of property, we were going to build a house. You know what we would do is we would hire a general contractor, right? We would hire him, and this is the guy that would kind of be over everything. But that general high contractor would hire subcontractors. He would hire an electrician. He would hire a drywall guy. He would hire all these people that would do different jobs. And and the general contractor would tell them, this is what gets done. But underneath the subcontractors would be employees. Maybe the drywall guy has multiple employees that helps him. and, and, And they have to follow the order of command, or there's chaos. You know, if, if uh, you know, one day one of the drywall guys says, you know, i got a few free hours, I'm going to go over to this house, it's, we've got a drywall, and so I'm going to drywall, and he goes and he starts drywalling, but the electrician hasn't been out yet, the plumber hasn't been out yet. Guess what? There's a big problem. They have to follow that, and there is always chaos that ensues. The workers have to submit. If anyone veers from the plan in the direction of the contractor, progress in the house will be stalled, and we understand that. In any aspect of life, you understand that. If you're at work and there's, you know, and, and everyone, there's no authority, there's no rule, guess what? There's chaos. And so there must be. God established authority for a reason. And I want to note three things about God's ordained authority. First of all, even, the, even in the Trinity, there is authority and submission. Although the God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are all equally God in every aspect carry out a divine plan, the Son submits to the Father, and the Spirit submits to the Father and to the Son. Notice what it says in, in this passage in Corinthians. When all things, this is uh, talking about Christ, when all things are subject to Him, then the Son Himself will also be subject to Him who put all things in subjection under Him, that God may be all in all. What is it saying there? Jesus Christ, who is God, placed Himself under the will of the Father. 
And that's why when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before he died, what did he say? He said, Lord, take this from me, but not my will, yours be done. You see, the the Holy Spirit as well. In John it says, when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you in all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Those are the words of Christ. And he is saying there that the Spirit will subject himself to the rule of Christ. There is never a point of rivalry or jealousy among the members of the Trinity, but rather perfect love and perfect harmony. And so there is this uh, incredible picture of of the Trinity which says that, that there is authority, there is submission. Someone said this, the most marked characteristic of the Trinity relationship is the presence of an eternal and inherent expression of authority and submission. Thus, Both authority and submission are good, for both are an expression of God Himself. Even God Himself, it's saying there, submits. You understand that. that There is a submission and authority that comes from God. But the second thing I want you to notice is that God instituted and ordained all authorities for His purpose. In Romans, it's talking about the authority of government, but I think it, 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 talks, it, it gives the idea of all authorities. And notice what it says there, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. That is an um, incredibly assuring, reassuring statement for me. I've talked to many of you, and many of you, and I'll be honest, many of me as well, <laughs> are panicking about the coming election. But you know what? God already knows. God's not up in heaven going, oh, I hope that person doesn't get elected. God already knows. And it tells us in the passage, there is no authority except it's given to them by God. God instituted authority, and I believe that carries through in all aspects of life. God gave you, wives, the husband that you have. God gave you the bosses you have at work. Kids, God gave you the parents that you have. And so when you stand up and say, I don't like them. I don't think they're any good for me. I think it's the wrong parents. What you're saying is, God, you messed up. God has instituted authority and ordained authority. And so we need to understand that every authority that we have in our life is from God. And you know what? We've all had authorities that we wish God would have made a different plan, don't we? But it's what God gave us for His purpose, for His glory. You see there then, the last point about that is, therefore, to resist God's authority is to defy God's purpose. That's a tough one to swallow right there. 
Whoever resists authority removes himself from the protection of God's purpose and God's plan and exposes himself to harm and punishment. That's why, continuing in Romans, what it says next is this, Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist incur judgment. God makes it very clear that we have a responsibility to follow the authority that He has placed over us. And to, do, uh, and to not to do so is to, is to, is to take ourselves under, out of the protection of God and to expect judgment. Rebellion against God-given authority is a serious, serious sin. In fact, in, in 1 Samuel, many of you know the story of what's taking place where God had called the king Saul to be the first king and he said uh, he would bless him, but King Saul turned his back on God. And God gave Saul a command. He said, uh, he said to him, Saul, I want you to go to the people of Amalek and I want you to destroy them completely because of history, because of what had taken place in the past. And he said, I want you to do this. And Saul, in his pride and in his arrogance, he went and, and he held back. He held back some animals that he felt were good for the people, but he held back specifically the king. And really, it was a, it was an, a matter of pride because many times when, when a king would go and conquer another land, he would bring the king back to his, uh, to his palace and he would make him a servant so that when people would come in, people from other lands, he would look and he would say, that's the king of so-and-so. That's the king of there. Yes, I destroyed them. And so it was a matter of pride and, and yet Saul comes back and he's, he blames the people and he blames all the things around him and he, and he doesn't take uh, the responsibility he should. And so through the words of the prophet Samuel, God says to Saul, he says this, for rebellion is as the sin of divination. In the King James it says it's as the sin of witchcraft. I remember when I was a kid and you know whether it was Awana or Sunday school or or you know, school, or maybe my parents just had me learn it because you know they wanted me to know how bad it was to rebel. <laughs> but I remember memorizing this verse and sitting there, and I'm studying it and going, "Rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft." Okay, I don't really know what that means. Here's here's the idea of what this verse is saying. We think a witchcraft is bad, okay? But what is he saying? Back in that time, there was very, very often that individuals would go to what we would call a witch, a divinator. And the idea was they would go because they wanted to find out what was God's plan for their life. They wanted to find out their future. And so what God is saying here to Saul is this. Saul, when you rebel, what you are doing is you are seeking another way. You are not trusting in my plan, in my guidance, in my time. You are saying, that's not good enough, Lord. I'm looking for my own. He's saying it's as the sin of witchcraft. He goes on and he talks about being at sin and idolatry. Basically what it is is this, is we are placing ourselves on an equal authority with God and saying, God, I want to choose my own path. You know, Satan fell because he put himself on equal plane with God. This is the basis of the temptation to Eve. To Eve, God came to, uh, I mean, to Adam and Eve and, and, uh, and, and had specific um, commands for them, and yet Eve defied that. 
Why? Because Satan said, if you eat this, you'll be like God. Do you like the sound of that? Go back and study that passage. And what I think is interesting is that she, uh, Satan got her to resist not only the authority of God, but also the authority of Adam. Because the command that was given to, to not eat of this tree was, was, not, was, was given to Adam, and Adam gave it to Eve. And so Eve had to have a thought here. What she had to say was this, I, I don't want to obey uh, what God says, but you know, I don't care what Adam says, I'm, I'm going to do this. And God had placed authority in her life, and she said, you know what, I want to place myself above my authority. And so when she did that, she took herself out of the protection of God. And Satan's appeal to her was this, you don't have to obey God, you don't have to obey your husband, make your own decisions, be your own authority. We hear that all the time today. It's safe to say that all the defiance against God-giving authority originated with Satan and puts those who resist authority in opposition to God Himself. We need to understand that defying authority is ultimately the sin of putting ourselves in God's authority. Putting ourselves equal with God. So then God tells us that we need to love each other so much that we voluntarily place ourselves under the authority of others. I want you to catch this. It's not that others place themselves in authority over us. It's the other way around. It does not say in that passage okay, that others are supposed to have authority over me. But you know what it's saying is that I am to voluntarily place myself in, in subjection to others. And you know what? You're to do the same to me. That is the idea that is said here. And so to defy the command of submitting to one another is to defy the authority of God. We see that there. And so mutual submission doesn't come until we really understand authority. <laughs> in the authority that God is and has in our lives, in the authority God has placed in our lives. Thirdly, mutual submission produces service for others. As I said earlier, the idea of mutual submission, even by some Bible scholars, is, is rejected. But there are many that accept it. There is a legitimate sense in which we are to submit to one another. But as I said, it does not negate the other God-given areas of authority. Rather, it means this, that we are to set aside all self-seeking and selfish assertiveness and humbly serve one another in love. The supreme example of this, as it is with so many aspects of Scripture, is Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ, and look at this passage in John, Jesus Christ, and this is when He's getting to the end of His life, and He's, he's in the upper room with the disciples, and they're having what's called the Last Supper, communion, which we'll have in a few moments. And, and He's having that, and He gets, and you know the story where He gets down, and He washes the disciples' feet, and they begin to argue, they begin to question, why are you doing this? Why are you serving us in this way? Because they understood authority. And there is, a, there is a chain of command. And they understood that Jesus was over them. They got it. 
They understood that, that they, their place was down here, his place was up here. And yet, notice what Jesus says. He says this, You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your teacher and Lord, had washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Here's the thing is Jesus did not relinquish his authority when he served others. When Jesus got down on his knees and he washed their feet, he was not saying, I am less God. But he was not demanding his rights. He was not lording over them and saying, ha I'm better than you. He didn't lead by domination. He led by love. He led by sacrifice. He lived a sacrificial life of obedience to the Father, giving himself, as Philippians said, giving himself even to the point of death, humbling himself to secure, why? To secure our redemption. So even in his point of of doing what he had to do as God, which was die on the cross, he was doing what he had to do to serve us. And that same passage in Philippians tells us to follow his example, and it says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Look, each of you, not on his own interest, but also on in the interests of others. So when I begin to mutually submit, when I begin to submit to others, I do so because of my understanding of who Jesus is. Remember, as we said all along, when we look back at that command in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 21, it says there, submitting to one another. That word one another is, is a word that means mutual. And so, finally, mutual submission is compelled by the fear of Christ. Notice, if you will, back in the passage, the text, it says in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 21, submitting to one another out of a reverence for Christ. Reverence for Christ is the concept of the fear of the Lord. It's not a cringing fear of judgment. It's not a fear of of terror, but it's a reverential fear that acknowledges Christ's supremacy. It is the awe of knowing that God has put all things in subjection under Christ's feet so that at the name of Jesus, as Philippians says, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. It's also the fear of not wanting to grieve or disappoint the One who loved us enough and served us enough to die for us. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, it, it tells us, and Ecclesiastes, as you know, is, is written by Solomon, and throughout it, Solomon tells us that he's tried everything in life. He's tried wealth, he's tried pleasure, he's tried work, he's tried leisure, he's tried uh, everything he could possibly try, and he comes to the conclusion that everything on this earth is worthless. But then he comes to the end of the book and he says this. This is the end of the matter. He says, this is my final conclusion. Fear God and keep His commandments. What did he mean by fear God? You know, fear in the sense that we often think about it comes from a lack of knowledge. And I like to explain it this way. That 
Why do people fear the dark? I've said this many times, but um, this building can be scary at night. Is it scary right now? No. Well, some of you are scary, but that's a whole other story. Oftentimes on Saturday night, I'll come here uh, after my family goes to bed, and I'll stay here late at night. I'm kind of a late night owl, so I'll stay here sometimes until midnight or so, studying and preparing for my message for this morning. Sometimes I'll even, I probably shouldn't admit this because some of you will try to spy on me, but sometimes I'll even come up in the pulpit and, and preach for a little bit to empty seats. They respond better than some of you do. <laughs> but there's many times where I'm here, and, and I, I'm in this building all the time. There's nothing about this building that scares me. Sometimes in the dark, it gets a little creepy. A few weeks ago, I was, I was in my office, and you know, pretty much every light in the building was off but my office, and, and I'm in my office, and, and all of a sudden I hear voices, and it sounds like they're right outside my office. Now, this was about midnight on a Saturday night, so I'm thinking, no one should be here. And so I get up out of my desk, and I slowly walk towards the door, I open the door and I can't hear anything. I look down the hallway and it's dark and there's no one down there. I look down and I look and there's some guy who is walking the street and stopped right in the front of the church and was sitting on the front step of the church having a conversation with himself. (laughs) And I just was like, okay. I go back to my office and and I finish up what I'm doing and I wait till he leaves before I finally leave. But, uh, you know, why do we fear dark? It's because it's, it's unknown. We don't know what's out there. Why do people fear death? They fear death because they're not sure what's going to follow. You know, why do people fear uh, spiders? Because they, they don't know where they're at. Why do I personally fear snakes? Because I'm afraid that they're going to crawl on me. Why do we fear? It's because we don't know what's going to happen. But that is not the fear that it's talking about. That is not the idea because a fear of God comes from a knowledge of who He is in His greatness and a knowledge of what He requires of me and the result of not meeting those requirements. I like to give this example. I fear getting into a ring with a heavyweight boxer. Why? Because I know what he's capable of. I know if I was to stand across from some big guy who's 200-some pounds and he's got muscles bigger than my waist and, you know, and one punch could send me to the balcony, I, knew, I know I don't want anywhere near that guy. And a fear of God is the knowledge of knowing what he's capable of. But it's not just what he's capable of. It's not just a knowledge of who he is. But it's a knowledge of what I deserve apart from the grace of God. And what I deserve apart from the grace of God is hell. In our Sunday school class this morning, we looked at 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 6-10, through and it talks about God's vengeance, and God's vengeance is a scary, scary thing. And so many people want to talk about God being a God of love, and God is a God of love, and, 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 but God is also a God of vengeance. And it tells us that because of sin, every man will stand and give an account. But here's the thing, God loved me. And in God's love, because He loved me, He sent Jesus Christ to die. And I know I deserve hell. But Jesus took my penalty. And so a fear of God and His acknowledgement of who God is 
what God has done for me. And now I stand in awe of Him and want to serve Him. And he says in, in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21, that because of my reverence and, and fear of God, I submit to one another. Our fallen nature is not inclined towards submission. Even as believers, we have a strong propensity to resist authority. I mean, I've heard some of you say it before. I'm a rule breaker. And we have a strong desire to risk authority, so we must first and foremost bow to Jesus as Lord. And when we fear Him, then we can more easily submit to the various spheres of human authority that God has ordained for our good. And the test becomes this. If we are truly subject to God's ordained authority, is whether or not we can do so joyfully. You know, grudging submission is perhaps better than no submission at all, but joyful submission shows that we're truly subjected to Christ. You know, teen, when your parents say, go to clean your room, and you slam the door five times as you're walking into your room, maybe you're submitting, but you're not really submitting to the authority of God. You're not subjecting yourself. Verse 21 is a continuation of the result of being Filled with the Spirit. And being filled with the Spirit includes a joyful singing and a heartfelt thanks to God. You cannot divorce submission from those two preceding verses. You cannot say you're submissive if you're not joyfully worshiping God and giving thanks to God. Submission can be joyful because we know that God has our good in view and that submission is the proper to the proper human authority is ultimately submitting to God himself. Also, a side note to that, to those that are in authority, if you live in the fear of Christ, then you will not abuse your authority. You will exercise authority out of love and out of desire to seek the highest good of those under your authority. Scripture tells us in Hebrews that one day those in authority will give an account. And I know that. That as a pastor, one day I will give an account not just of of what I do in my own life, but how I interact with you. And I will stand up, and if I have a fear of God and understanding of God, you know what? My life and my goal as a pastor is not just to use my position of power, but to, to use my position of submission. So they... With the right view, we view leadership as not an opportunity for personal advantage, but as a solemn responsibility to exercise the fear of the Lord. So in closing here, before we go to communion, let me ask you some hard questions. Are you a submissive person? Are you a submissive person? Most importantly, are you submitting daily to Jesus as your Lord in every area of your life? Are you subject to the government in obedience to Christ? Are you submitting to the local church and its leadership? As a wife, are you submitting to your husband? As children, are you subject to your parents? As workers, are you subject to your employer? And for all of us, are we submitting ourselves to others in selfless service for Christ's sake? Do you look for the needs in others and seek to minister to those needs? 
If you are filled with the Spirit, your relationship should be marked by joyful submission to others out of a fear of Christ. Let's pray. Thankful for the opportunity we have to be here this morning and to serve you. Lord, our natural bent, you know this, our natural bent is to reject authority. We see that starting even before the garden with Satan. Lord, our desire is to do our own thing, but yet we know that as we understand what you have done for us, the incredible sacrifice you gave of sending Jesus Christ to die on a cross for us, then we understand that there's nothing we can do but submit out of fear, out of awe, out of reverence. Lord, I pray that you help us, first of all, to submit to your authority, but to submit to the authority of of those you have placed over us. Lord, to submit to each other, mutually desiring to serve one another, yielding to the needs of others and not our own. Lord, I pray that you help us to do that. As we head into a time of communion, Lord, help us to remember that the reason that we observe communion is because Jesus submitted to you. Lord, I pray you help us to do the same. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.